We're talking about the office of elders. And the office of elder does not originate in the book of Acts. It does not originate in 1 Timothy or Titus. It originates in the very beginning of God's people, the Old Testament church. And this is one example from Numbers 11. And so with God's word open before us, would you join me as we pray and ask for his help? Our gracious God, would you make your words swift in our hearts? Father, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, opening our eyes, applying your word, that your word might do its work in us and in this church. So help us to understand. Help us to receive from your word that which we do not have. Our Father, we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, O Lord, stands forever. So help us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here now, Numbers 11, verses 1 to 17. This is the living word of the living God. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the cakes, taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth? that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. And the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And there, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And now would you turn over 
to our New Testament reading and our sermon passage this morning, Titus chapter 1. We're looking especially at verses 5 through 9, but because it's not that long and it's good to see the context, we're going to start with Titus 1, verse 1, and read through uh, to verse 9. So here again, God's living word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, so ends this reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it by his spirit. Well, again, good morning. The letter to Titus, as we saw last week, has one central focus, a healthy church. That is what this letter is all about. It wants uh, to produce a healthy church first in Crete and then everywhere else where the gospel spreads to Corona. It is a message that seeks to build a healthy church. And so what makes a healthy church Well, last week, and as we read this week in the opening verses, church health flows from faithful and clear preaching of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ as the one who came to save sinners. And the verses that we're teaching today teach that another necessity that flows from the gospel, another necessity for a healthy church is healthy leaders, godly elders, godly men who are called and ordained for ministry. You need healthy leaders who are appointed to a public role in the church for ministry. And healthy leaders in the church are men who are transformed by the gospel message that they proclaim. And so you might hear this and think, well, I am not an elder. I don't think I'm ever going to be an elder. So why should I just not tune out? Well, here's why you should not tune out In this sermon. First, all these traits that we read are actually for all Christians. There are things that God calls all Christians to exemplify. Another pastor named Neil Stewart was listening to him on this passage, and he had a good way of putting it. He said, What every Christian should be, an elder must be. So every Christian's called to these virtues, these good things. Every Christian's called to avoid the bad things that are named. But what every Christian should be, an elder, a leader in God's church, must be. So that's the first reason not not to tune out. This is for all of God's people. The second reason is that healthy leaders are a gift from God. 
And they are for the well-being of the church, therefore your spiritual well-being. And so you should uh, want healthy leaders. You should want to know what they look like. You should pray for the Lord to send godly leaders to our churches. And number three is whoever you are, whether you are a believer or not, you need someone who you can look at and who you can say, well, I see proof in that man's life that the gospel message actually does follow through on what it promises. Can you imagine if you were to go to, I don't know, Honda headquarters and find out that the president of Honda drives a Toyota? That might make you question whether or not Hondas are all they're cracked up to be. Do you remember the commercial Cy Sparling? Have you ever heard that name? That sounds made up. It's a real name. He's the guy who came on uh, TV and commercials. And he said, I am not only the president of the hair club for men, I'm also a client. I am probably past the point of needing the hair club for men. But can you imagine someone who professed to, to see something as incredibly important and yet it made absolutely no difference in their life? Well, that's uh, not at all what God calls his church to. That's not what God calls elders to. Elders are to be people, the most of all, who've been transformed by God's grace, who can show you by their lives that this actually does make a difference. This actually is true and leads to the life that God's people should have. And then finally, you need to hear this so that you can pray. So you can pray for your leaders, pray for your elders, pray for our session, uh, pray for other elders, pray for the Lord to raise up more elders. And as you pray, you need to know what to look for. And this passage gives us that. And so, what does an elder look like? What makes an elder? Well, the first thing to see from these verses is that a healthy church is a Presbyterian church. Now, before you leave, before you walk out the door, I am being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I'm not saying that only Presbyterian churches are true churches, but I am serious when I say that we very intentionally, as a Presbyterian church, structure our church government on this passage in Titus and others that are like it. There are several types of church government out there. They are more or less biblical. They are more or less thoroughly grounded on what the Bible teaches, and we only do what we do because... We think it's a good way to apply what the Bible teaches. So why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? Well, he says he did it to put what remains into order. That's the mission of the whole letter. And what's the first thing for Titus to put into order? It's this, to appoint elders in every town. The Greek word for elder in verse 5 is presbyterus. So I only say that so that you can hear what it sounds like. First, you can hear in that word where Presbyterian comes from. So I really am sort of serious when I say that a healthy church is a Presbyterian church because Presbyterian means elder-led. It means a church that's led by elders who have been appointed to public ministry. So that's the first interesting thing, to hear what the word actually is, presbyterous. You can see Presbyterian comes from that. But another interesting thing is that the word elder is not singular. It's elders. It's plural. Paul instructs Timothy Titus to appoint elders in every city, not a single lead pastor, not a lone visionary leader, but multiple elders. God grants authority to lead in the church to many, 
not just one. We call it a plurality of elders because every time elders are talked about in the New Testament, it is plural. Everywhere the apostles went, planting new churches involved appointing multiple elders. That is what we have in our Presbyterian church government is multiple elders. So if you look at verse 7, you'll see another word for ordained leaders in the church. The ESV, if you're looking at the ESV, which is what I read, translates it as overseers. But if you have other translations, maybe New King James, I'm not totally sure. Other translations might use the word bishop. And the Greek word originally used there is episkopoi. And you might hear in that word another church government word. The Episcopal Church is a church that is a hierarchy led by bishops. So these two words, presbyterus and episcopoi, have caused a lot of confusion because some and some church traditions have understood them to be two different offices, elders and bishops, with bishops at the top of the pyramid. But you can even see in this passage that they are talking about the same leadership role. They're two words to describe the same person. This passage is not teaching that we have elders and bishops. It's teaching that elders are bishops. Elders refers to those who are spiritually mature. They are spiritual elders, not necessarily chronological elders, but spiritual elders. An overseer or bishops describes what elders do. They lead, they rule in the government of God's church. You can see these two words side by side in Acts 20 as well. In Acts 20, Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus, he calls them elders, the same word from which we get Presbyterian. He calls them to come to him as he bids them farewell. And in that farewell, he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops. Elders and overseers are the same role. And so that really does make a difference in how you view church government. And in our church, in Corona Presbyterian Church, in our presbytery, in our whole denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, leadership is always and only in the hands of many elders. I am the pastor, but I do not call the shots. If you come and you ask me to make some decision, I'm going to tell you that I do not do that. That's not what I do. The session makes decisions. The session leads the church, and I'm part of the session, but when it comes to the government of the church, I am just a member of the session with the elders. And this is because we believe that the health of the church and the glory of Jesus Christ is most advanced when leadership is in the hands of multiple godly men who govern according to scripture. It's too much for one man to have all the power. You see power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And because we know this is true in a fallen world, that's why God has given the government of the church into the hands of many men rather than just one. Now this does not make us a perfect church, but it does mean that we are serious about church health. It does not mean that other churches that do it a different way are sinning, but we are trying to be thoroughly biblical in how we structure our church government. So, you know what elders means. You know what role that's talking about. The rest of this passage gives you the identification, what to look for, what are the qualifications for an elder. And you can see a word or a phrase that's repeated a couple times. 
And that is this, above reproach. An elder must be above reproach. You can see this in a few different ways. But the first way in which an elder is above reproach is in his family life. An elder is above reproach when it comes to his family. Now, above reproach means that a prospective elder or one who's already serving is one who is of a high and consistent and proven character. It means that if you were to sit down and interview, interview his family and his friends and neighbors and co-workers and his fellow church members, they wouldn't have enough evidence to put together to bring a charge against him of a sinful lifestyle. This does not mean that an elder is perfect. It doesn't say that an elder needs to be without blemish or absolutely perfect. It says that an elder is above reproach. That means when it comes to public things, no one can say, based on these qualifications, oh yeah, that guy is an arrogant guy. And if you can find one, can you find multiple witnesses who say, yeah, he's pretty arrogant. Or I've seen him and I don't know that he fulfills the requirement of being the husband of one wife. I don't know if he does a good job when it comes to his children. Can people line up to bear witness to the fact that someone does not meet these qualifications? That's what above reproach means. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you never have an arrogant thought. It means that those, uh, those vices do not have control over you. They're not the controlling force in your life. You are quick to confess and repent and go to God for forgiveness of those sins. They don't have mastery. That's what above reproach means. This passage doesn't call for perfection because perfection is not possible in this life. An elder simply needs to be above reproach, have a consistent and a growing Christian life. So remember, what a Christian should be, an elder must be. And so an elder must be above reproach first in his family life. One commentator puts it well, that the family is the proving ground for an elder. If he fails in family life, well, that is a huge red flag for his leadership in the church. So think about it. If a guy messes up when he is in charge of his hometown's 4th of July parade, you won't find him coordinating the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade or the Rose Parade that year, right? It's not going to happen. If he messes up on the small scale, he's not going to be asked to lead on a larger scale. So an elder proves himself as a spiritual leader in the area of his marriage and his parenting. He is to be, first, the husband of one wife. This literally, if you were to translate it in a very wooden, literal way, says he is to be a one-woman man. This doesn't disqualify uh, prospective elders who are unmarried. It doesn't mean you must be married, but it means if you are married, you must be faithful in your marriage. It doesn't simply mean that an elder must not be a polygamist. If you have multiple wives, you are, you are ruled out from being an elder. But it doesn't simply stop there. It means in your marriage, you are called to be faithful. If you are single and not married, you're called to be faithful to the Lord in your singleness. Being faithful is more than simply avoiding adultery. It's actually more positive than that. It means loving and serving and cherishing and protecting your wife. It means in the home that you bear the burden of leadership in your family. But it especially means that you are the one who is uh, the spiritual thermostat 
of your family. You set the pace. You set the direction for where things are going in terms of the spiritual life of your family. And so an elder is to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Well, the second half of verse 6 shows that an elder is also qualified by how he serves as a father. doesn't mean he has to have children, just like it doesn't have to, have, have to be married. But if he is a father, what kind of a father is he? And this is specifically speaking about children who still live at home or who still are in other ways under their parents' authority. It's not talking about older children. It's talking about children who are still in the home. These words call for children to be believers who are free from scandalous sin. If you look in the footnotes of your Bible, you might have a footnote that comes at the word believers and says, well, this also could be translated as faithful. It must be faithful. And that means whether or not a child becomes a true Christian, that's kind of out of the hands of parents. You know, parents who have labored long and faithfully to teach their children all of the truth of God's word and their children are not believers. But they've done those tasks that they've been given faithfully. And there are others who know all the ways they fail as parents. And by God's grace, their children are believers. not saying your children must be professing Christians. It's saying that you, as a father, along with your wife, must be a faithful spiritual leader in your home. Are you raising your children to be faithful? Elders should set the pace in the church for raising their children to know and love Jesus, to know and to believe the Bible, and one day to publicly profess their own faith. It's in God's hands to bring that about. But is a prospective elder one who is faithful in that task? Some of us were at family camp. Ryan McGraw, who's the speaker there, put it this way. He said, we are to parent in a way that shows it's more important that our kids be God's children than that they be our children. That's our major goal, that they... Uh, profess faith in Jesus Christ, that they truly be God's children. So children of elders are to be raised faithfully, but children of elders are also to be free from charges of debauchery and insubordination. Well, what does this look like? It probably looks different depending on the ages of the children involved. If you have a man who's a prospective elder and his home life is chaos, his children never listen to him, uh, everything is just a huge mess, well, that is uh, not a good sign for his ability to lead and to be uh, a spiritual authority. If you have older children and there is actual debauchery, actual insubordination going on, that's another uh, strike against that man's call to eldership as well. So it looks different based on the age. But a good question to ask is when you look at that elder or that prospective elder, do you see things that are worth emulating in the way that he is a father and the way that he's a husband? Would you trust your own children with him? Would you trust them to his care? And you should be able to say, yeah, I think so. I think I'd be uh, perfectly fine leaving my children in his care. I know he would do a good job and take care of what they needed. So that's a good way to evaluate these things. Family life is the proving ground for elders. And this is because Paul puts it more clearly in 1 Timothy 3, 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Your first church is your family. The first people who God has given a husband and father to shepherd are his children and his wife. 
And if he doesn't do a good job there, how will he do a good job on a larger scale? Well, these qualifications for family life at least imply something that is not very popular to hear today. And that's this. God only calls men to be elders. This isn't Paul's focus here, but it's implied by the fact that an elder is to be a husband. And in 1 Timothy 2.12, he is clear. He says there, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Well, these instructions are especially for the church. They're especially focused on public worship. But we need to be clear, the authority to govern the church and to preach the word is only for elders. And God only calls men to be elders. This is the clear pattern in the Bible. All the official ordained leaders of public worship in the Old Testament church were men. Jesus only called men as his apostles. And all the instructions in the New Testament for, church, for the church presume that those in leadership will be men. Well, this is super unpopular in the world. And it's increasingly unpopular in the wider church. But we need to stand on God's word. We need to stand where God's word places the boundary line and say, this is, this is clear from what he says. But we also need to be sure we're not going beyond God's word. We go beyond God's word when we say things like, women are inferior to men at the level of their being. That's not true. All women with men are image bearers. All women with men are equally valuable, equally important, equally necessary. There are some women who do actually have amazing gifts for leadership and amazing gifts for teaching. And those are gifts that they should use, but they're not called to use those gifts in the government and the authoritative teaching of the church. Just like not every Christian man is called to be an elder, that doesn't mean that a Christian man who's not called to be an elder should feel less or less valuable or less important. It just means that you've been given a different role by God, within the setting of the church. Not every Christian is called to the special office of elder or deacon or minister, but every Christian is called to the general office of believer. Others call it the universal office. If you are a Christian, you are an officer in the church. You've been gifted by God uh, in order to serve him. But the special office, the unique office, those that are defined by scripture, is clearly, according to God's word, for men. So, having said that, I've made everybody, maybe I've made everybody mad by saying, first, it's a Presbyterian church and only men can be elders, but we're going to move on. And if you're mad, we can talk about it in Sunday school. Uh, so, while verse 6 and 7, uh, verse 6 calls an elder to be above reproach in his family relationships, verse 7 calls an elder to be above reproach in his character. So, as you look at this list, there are five things that an elder must not be. John Stott points out that these are things where if you're exposed to these temptations, they are an occupational hazard for Christian leaders. They're an occupational hazard for elders in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's because being an elder does involve actually some real authority. It's limited authority. It's limited by God's word. We only have authority as ministers to apply and to teach God's word, but it is real authority. And all these things, these five sins are either abuses of authority or can easily lead to abuses of authority. So as you see this list, just think about what they involve. Think about 
your reaction when you even overhear someone being arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk or violent or greedy. When you hear that, you're not even part of the conversation, but you hear it going on in a family, maybe even in a church, it makes you very uncomfortable. It shows that there's a person who's not in control of himself. And if you can't lead yourself, how can you lead the church? Just like if you can't lead your family, how can you expect to lead the people in the church? If you can't lead yourself, how can you expect to exemplify all the things that a Christian should be? Well, you don't, sadly, need to spend very much time before you find recent news stories and podcasts and whole documentaries about church leaders who abuse their authority in all five of these ways. And whenever that happens, it leaves spiritual disaster in its wake. Perhaps some of you have listened to the podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. That chronicles a Seattle megachurch that imploded. And it imploded largely because of an abusive leader and an unhealthy church culture that grew up over many years And that unhealthy culture grew up during many years of outward success. At its height, it was a reformed, friendly church. They preached lots of things that we would agree with. But it was in Seattle. Isn't that amazing? A reformed, friendly church in Seattle that had an average weekly attendance of about 12,000. That is amazing, isn't it? But all that came crashing down. And on that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you can listen to so many former members, even some former pastors who are interviewed there, and they are no longer walking with the Lord because of the terrible experience that they had. Now, obviously, there are other, probably other things going on, but the church situation certainly did not help. Failure in Christian leadership never stops with the leader, and it always affects others. And so elders are called to avoid even the appearance of these vices. And how do you do that? Well, a lot of the conversation about Christian leadership failures in these same podcasts and documentaries has focused on the abuses. And that's important. It's important to call those things out. But how do you actually prevent abuses? Well, it's not simply to avoid these areas of sin and temptation. That's important, but there's more that you need to do. Instead of simply avoiding these things, elders are called to cultivate lives that exemplify the six virtues that are in verse 8. I heard a story once of a landscaper who was famed for his beautiful lawns, his green grass, and someone asked him, what is your secret? What sort of weed killer do you use to grow such good, strong grass? Well, his response was that, yes, sometimes you have to pull weeds. Sometimes you even have to use weed killer. But he said, my focus is not on the weeds. My focus instead is on growing strong and healthy grass. Well, that's the exact focus here. You should be on guard for abuses of authority, but you should spend your time focused on growing a strong and godly character. You can be disqualified as an elder by failures, But you're qualified not just by avoiding failures. You're qualified by the virtues that are listed here. And you can see six of them in verse 8. The first two are meant to go together. In English, they sound like completely different words. 
But in Greek, they have the same beginning. That is phila. Phila is a word for love. So Philadelphia, by the way, the greatest city in the United States and perhaps the world, is the city of brotherly love. You can see that in the second word, an elder is to be a lover of good. But the first word that's translated hospitable is actually a lover of strangers or a lover of guests. Hospitality is a good word to use for that. It's a good translation, but there's more that can be said. An elder is one who loves those who are new and strangers and don't know what they're doing, don't know why they're here. And so an elder is one who seeks out new people and makes them feel welcome. An elder is a lover of good who rejoices in all the good things God has made and can be trusted to, uh, to exemplify that goodness in his life. You can see the other words, self-control and discipline, go together. If you have self-control and discipline, that will combat all of the things that are vices in the previous verse. In verse 7, an elder has self-control and discipline. So when he wants to do those things that are wrong, he doesn't. He's able to say no to what his heart says. Well, you could probably get away with it this time. He's able to say no. I'm going to be disciplined for God's glory And an elder must be upright in the way he relates with people. And he must be holy or devout in the way he relates to God. And so he must be above reproach in his family and above reproach in his character. And so that's what we've seen so far, these character qualifications. And you can find a lot of those similar things in 1 Timothy and in other places where elders are talked about. Similar lists are there. In 1 Timothy, the only actual thing that an elder is said to do that's uh, not just a character trait is that he is to be able to teach. But the overwhelming majority of the list is about his character. It's important to see that character is more important than competence or uh, graces are more important than gifts. God's grace in your life is more important than the way he's gifted you. And a lot of the disasters that we've seen or because people are put into positions of leadership where they have wonderful gifts, gifts for teaching, gifts for leading, and they are able to attract people, but they don't have a similar level of achievement when it comes to their graces. They have great competence, but they don't also have great character. And that can only come by God's grace. But in this list, teaching is also the only thing that is given to an elder to do. That's That's uh, an elder's task. It's not just character. Character qualifies, but teaching uh, the word, holding firm to the word is what an elder should do. Many times in ancient lists around the same period, the last thing on the list is the most important. And it is here too. Imagine if you were making a grocery list for a steak dinner and you put steak last. Well, what happens if The person you send to the grocery store forgets to get steak. Well, you have a lot of ingredients, but you can't have a steak dinner without steak, right? Similar here, you can't have an elder, uh, even if you have all these other things, you you can't have an elder unless you have a man who holds firmly to the word. An elder is devoted to God's word. And he's devoted to that word, it says here, as taught, as taught by the apostles. That's what verse nine is talking about. It's the word for teaching, An elder understands the whole Bible in light of what the apostles teach. And we have that in the New Testament. We don't have apostles today, but we have 
their writings. That's why these qualifications are so important. Verse 7 says that an elder must be above reproach because he is God's steward. That's the role he's given. He's God's steward, and he's a steward of God's word. A steward manages things. A steward opens the door when you come to a house. A steward brings out of the storehouse the things that are there to, to make sure the people are well taken care of, and that's what an elder does. And how does he do that? How does he bring God's word that he holds firmly to to the people? Well, Paul gives us two specific ways that this is done. He instructs in sound doctrine, first, and second, he rebukes those who contradict it. John Calvin described this as the pastor's two voices. Here's what he said. He said, a pastor needs two voices one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. And the scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And so by holding firmly to the truth of God's word, he's able to use a gentle voice to draw the lost to Jesus, to bring them the truth that they are desperately in need of hearing. But holding the truth also means that an elder is able to recognize when someone has departed from that truth and is teaching something that's false and not sound and unhealthy, and when he sees that happening, he needs to use a stern voice to rebuke false teaching. If you look down at the rest of Titus 1, you can see this is important for Titus to hear because there are a lot of false teachers in Crete. And Paul says in verse 11 to Titus, they must be silenced. That is the strong language he uses for the rebuke of God's word. It makes it even clearer in verse 13. He says there, rebuke them sharply. When there's false teaching, an elder takes action, not in a mean way, not in a way to totally destroy that person, but in a way to advocate for the truth in a way that shows the truth is true and the falsehood is false. Now, every elder has some involvement in the ministry of the word. But not every elder is called to the ministry of the word in exactly the same way. In the OPC, we have two kinds of elders, ruling elders and teaching elders or ministers. A ruling elder is called to lead in the government and discipline of the church along with the pastor and, and other elders who are there as the session. And so that involves applying the word, putting the word into practice in the life of the church. So that's why elders are involved in interviewing new members or involved in church discipline uh, when that is necessary, or involved in just the overall direction of the church as they apply God's word uh, to the life of the church. But a teaching elder is especially called to a role of teaching. He should be able to teach. He should be skilled and trained in that. A ruling elder is not called to it in the same way. A ruling elder should have an aptitude for teaching, maybe even especially in one-on-one -on -one settings, but he's not called to the same level of teaching as a teaching elder or minister. That is the task, to bring God's word to bear on the life of the church. So as you hear these qualifications and you hear this task, you might be wondering what Paul wonders in 2 Corinthians 2. He asks there, who is sufficient for these things? Who is up to the task? Who is actually really qualified? And the honest answer is no one. 
Every elder who knows his own heart knows that the task is too difficult and the qualifications are too exacting and the call is too important to be entrusted to a sinful man like him. But paradoxically, any elder who felt up to the task, who felt like, yeah, I can do that, is probably not someone who should be doing it. And also, counterintuitively, knowing how weak you are is the first step to receiving God's strength. In 2 Corinthians 2, after he asks who is sufficient for these things, Paul answers that question. He says, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So an elder who is sincere, an elder who has been commissioned by God, who serves in the sight of God, has every reason to expect the Lord to give him strength even if he knows all the ways he's fallen short, even if he knows all the ways that he really isn't the best man for the job, if God has called you, God has commissioned you, then God will strengthen you for that task. But the most important thing is for an elder to remember that he serves and he speaks in Christ. Elders, and really any Christian, can only effectively serve in Christ. Elders should be those who've been transformed by the gospel of grace. So they are united to Jesus Christ by faith and equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve. Charles Bridges was an author from the 18th century, and he wrote this when it comes to the call to ministry as an elder or a minister or a deacon. He said, the sense of defilement almost shuts the mouth, but the sense of mercy fills the heart. And when you know how defiled you are, how unqualified you are, but how much mercy God has shown you, how can you do anything but serve him and give your all for his glory? Well, elders are not the foundation of the church. Here's some foreshadowing for what is coming. Our closing hymn, the church's one foundation is not elders or deacons or pastors. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. Elders can only serve effectively when they remember they are under shepherds of the great shepherd Jesus Christ. When they are ministers, not of their word, but of his word. When they are those who remember and can't ever forget that they are those who are forgiven and transformed sinners who serve in union with Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you are, you are an elder, or you're a prospective elder, Here are these qualifications. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work up these qualifications more and more in your life. But remember that you rely upon Jesus Christ alone to do the work he's called you to do. If you're here and you will never be an elder, here is who to look for as a member of this church. You as the congregation are called to vote. Elders are never imposed upon a local church. They are always voted voted on and arise from that local church. So here are the qualifications you should look for. And if you see someone who meets these qualifications, talk to me, talk to Brent, talk to Chris Hartshorn when he's here. We want to know. Uh, We probably already know those things, but we want to hear it from other people as well. That's very, very helpful. And all of us should pray. Pray for God's grace, because elders are a great gift to the church. We need to pray for him to raise up more and more for the health of this church and the glory 
of Jesus Christ. So let's pray right now for his help to do that work in our midst. Our Father, we do pray that you would be at work in this church, in this place. Raise up elders. We thank you for the elders that we have, and we pray for the elders that we need. Would you equip men in this place to be your servants, to be your stewards, to be above reproach in their families and in their character, and to hold firm to the trustworthy word that they might teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it for the glory of your name and the health of your church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.